Welcome, everyone who survived the dreaded holiday season, to A Catalepsis, the podcast that is truly one of the podcasts. <laughs> Hi, my name is Thomas, and I almost didn't survive the uh, holidays, quite literally. <laughs> and I'm Sarah. I caught COVID, so I'm right there with you. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, yeah, we were all off air for a while for a reason. <laughs> but we're back, mostly. Yeah, mostly. We're uh, anyways, shall we jump right into it? Yeah, go for it. You have first summary? Yeah, we're picking back up with chapters 3.3 and 3.4 of uh, Catalepsis. In 3.3, Heather and Rain are surprised at Evelyn's house by a cuddly blue woman who's apparently a demon. Rain and Evelyn emphasize how insanely dangerous demons are, but also that Evelyn decided it was a good idea to summon one without telling them anyway. The demon, dubbed Prame by Heather, apparently agreed to work for Evelyn for strawberries. Evelyn has been sending Prame out to scout and harass the Sheriffhood cult's entire network of twisted spaces, um, which is apparently a thing they have. And this triggers a fight between Evelyn and Rain. Heather feeds Prame a bit, musters up the courage to demand Rain try harder to work things out with Evelyn, and then summons more courage to go talk to monsters. These these summaries are doing a lot of work increasingly in these chapters. Like <laughs> Heather feeds Prime is that there's a, there's a moment that we're just glossing over there. We'll get to it. It's a summary. <laughs> All right. And three point four, Heather decides mm -hmm. to go outside to try and talk to one of the spirits who approached her before. The spirit, who she finds pouting across the street, initially seems willing to talk and reaches out to her only to be scared off when Heather shows the fractal as insurance. Rain finds her and guides her back to the house. There, they talk with Evelyn, who they try and convince to take a nap. Evelyn says she can, but also warns that there are intruders in the city and she needs to remove them. Heather is slightly wary, but agrees that they need to protect themselves. Evelyn goes one step further and suggests that she and Rain move in with them. Heather, being a useless lesbian, I mean, a functioning member of society, agrees. The chapter ends with a dream sequence in which Lazi reveals that her brother is tracking Heather down and asks her to kill him. Yeah, that was a hell of an ending to that chapter. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh. All right. Um. Shall we just start with talking about Prame? <laughs> because she is very much a new character in this story. Yes, the um, the final boss of Catalepsis. <laughs> Lord. But yeah, anyways, the first thing I want to talk about is her description is fascinatingly different than all the other monsters we've seen so far. Um, she's described in... I almost don't know how to put it. Like, the description we're given is that, first of all, just blue. Skin and shoulder-length hair shaded in the most subtle sh blue of glacial ice. Perfect skin, no expression, spine ramrod straight. Heels together, shoulders back, hands clasped daintily in front of her like a 19th century maid. She was dressed in Evelyn's clothes, a thick, soft pullover and long, comfy skirt, huge army boots on her feet. Age impossible to guess, anywhere from 15 to 30. Blank eyes, no pupils, no iris, no veins, only milk-white schlera. And I just, I couldn't pin down what style that description was in. Like... Part of it felt almost like a fantasy description, and part of it felt like something you'd see out of an anime. And I was then there was say, it almost was like if you if you took the aesthetic of anime 
but then like describe that thing physically in a fantasy novel, this is what you'd get. Almost, except then there's the description of her clothes and that just jars it completely, which of course it does. It's Evelyn's clothes. Um, but yeah. Um, the really interesting Brand thing- Bran is pretty. That's my take. This is true. The really interesting thing, though, is the fact that she is so human compared to the other otherworldly things we've seen, I think really informs how Heather interacts with her. Um, it's also interesting that Heather is the first one to call this difference out. That, like, mm -hmm. she's the one to name her. To say that, like, mm -hmm. no, she, I refuse to treat her. Well, you'll bring this up, I'm sure. Yeah. But, like, that I refuse to treat her like a thing. Yeah, well, so the thing is, that's exactly the next thing I was going to pull out, which was she calls heather calls prame she and she gets referred to as it by evelyn and rain and she says it i echoed faintly disgusted she looks like a human being to me and i wanted your take on this because i couldn't decide if this was heather making an anthropocentric like anthropocentric judgment or if she's making a non-anthropocentric judgment placed in an anthropocentric framework just because she doesn't have any other framework for talking about the value of life. I was about to say, is is this a, like, um, what's it called? <laughs> Holds up a chicken, behold a man moment? <laughs> well, I think that's almost a different framework, which is like, I can't tell if Heather is defending Prame as a person, like a sapient person with preferences and individuality that she thinks should be valued. I can't tell if she's doing that because she looks human and that's like making all the difference in Heather's head or if she's and in doing so if she's missing the fact that Prame is not human right or if it's the other way around that she would because like how she valued like the tick earlier or the thing which got like pulled into their realm and uh Rain beat it to death right if she's seeing Prame's humanity or personhood the same way she would see the value of life in that tick thing but then just articulating it through the framework of she's a human because that's the only framework she has for this you got any take on it because I've, i'm lost <laughs> i think in, i think in the literal sense like just in the straight up knowledge heather realizes that prame is not a human like that that's impossible to refute she mm -hmm. she knows that at least on an intellectual level that functionally yeah. speaking by by this point that Prem is a demon that has been put into some sort of a body. So like that much we have as a basis. Mm -hmm. But whether or not you're saying that like she's making a value judgment that Prem has like the more ethereal hu human-like sentience or individuality as we would describe it, or whether she's saying that like because she looks like a human, therefore we should treat her as one, I yeah. think... I would honestly look to the further chapters. The The next chapter in particular, I think, informs this because, and we'll get to this, hmm. but Prame is the first example where this theme that we've been mentioning this whole time really becomes explicit, that Heather starts questioning, like, where is the boundary between the things that we call monsters and what we are? And yeah. discovering that there isn't really a boundary that is a lot harder to, de to like, define and describe. So, hmm. like... On one hand, could this be just purely um, Heather saying that, like, if she looks like a woman, then we treat her like one? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, also trans rights. Um, but on the other hand, 
I think especially with the with the context of the next chapter and how she treats that spirit, I think that Heather in a real way is forcing herself to confront her own biases and say that like, if this thing that is that I know intellectually is not human, but I cannot bring myself to treat like an object exists. What does that mean for every other non-human thing mm. I have encountered? Yeah. God, you've literally word for word like hit the next line I was going to bring up. <laughs> Where Heather says, Heather says straight up, you cannot have something that looks like a person and treat it as an object. I refuse. Yeah. Tends to be a rather bad idea. Tends to lead to treating other people like objects too. I was gonna, I was gonna say that as well. Yeah, even just from the, um, from the literal sense of like, it, it is the same reason why my partner and I say like, mm -hmm. thank you to like you know Google every time we access the voice assistant. It's not mm -hmm. because we think it's sentient. It's not, but because it's habit building. Mm, interesting. See, if you get used to talking to something that sounds human, in a way, in a certain way. Our brains aren't good at differentiating it. That will spill over. See, the funny thing is, from like a sociopathy perspective, all of this is just totally alien to me. The mm -hmm. idea of any inherent, like uh, the idea of just, the idea of inherently describing worth to something just because it looks human on such a deep level that like, that not treating as a person something which simply has human-like traits could then bleed over into your treatment of people like humans that's just wildly alien to me i can hardly even parse it it's it's interesting because i think it's it's not one or the other to me like mm -hmm. i think heather's surface level reasoning is a lot like um my and my partners for the google thing which is that, like, it's not that the thing looks like a human. Yeah. It is the fact that, like, some aspect of it fills enough of the, like, categories in our head that we recognize, oh, if I get used to this type of behavior with this thing, it might spill into this other thing which matters. And so, functionally speaking, that means I need to adjust my behavior accordingly. Because even if I might not, like, intellectually make that connection, my body might anyway. Yeah, I, well, and I guess that, that's just the thing for me. It's I've had to learn and assemble these behaviors from scratch to such an extent that, like, like it's an effort. Like, it's an effort to treat people as people, right? Not just as like inanimate, like like as inanimate objects, which happen to be animate, basically, right? That took a lot of learning on my part when I was a kid. It took a lot of effort to build up that framework and get it to like the point where it was automatic and instinctual. But so when you introduce something new to me, like a phone that can talk back, I guess there's just no link there. Like, Because you're having to manually assign that link every time anyways. It's more effort well, for you to make the association than yeah. it is to detach it. Well, the thing is, after a long enough time, it stopped being manual. It did start becoming automatic with people. But to create that new association with, like, Google on my phone, that would take effort. 
I would have to do it manually over and over and over again until it finally became automatic. And even then, I think it was a new category. Yeah. And even then, I think it would take even more effort to link that category to people. Um, which makes sense if that if that yeah. category is being like assigned manually, you're needing to confront the differences every time you do it. Yeah, yeah. And and so the thing is, like with this bit in catalepsis, I had to reread the section like four or five different times to even be able to parse the surface level of what's going on with Heather here. Because I just don't really know what's going on in other people's heads when they have these kinds of automatic reactions where something with human traits becomes human in their head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's fascinating. Uh-huh. The other the other interesting thing is that um, something on the even more surface level that we're um, kind of, I'm not, not glossing over, but that we haven't touched on yet, is that this is a direct lampshade to how objectification happens. Mm. Oh, Frame is a very curvy pretty woman who looks like a maid from an anime and heather is saying she refuses to objectify her that's not an accident but also i'd question how successful she even is at that because like when she oh for sure for sure it's it's not as easy as just saying it but like this is a moment where almost the the narrative is meta calling out like i know that that like the author is saying, I believe mm-hmm. in some way or another that I know the kind of trope that I mm-hmm. am even like subtly invoking here. And I refuse to play it straight. Yeah. I mean, nothing straight in catalepsis, but. <laughs> True. Well, so the thing is, there's this line where um, Heather ends up feeding Cream strawberries and gets um, low key aroused by it because. Low key? high key aroused right because she's fading this gorgeous curvy maid lady like strawberries who's basically like practically eating off her fingers right and then prame smiles at her and heather is this line where she says that smile was a bucket of cold water over my arousal a mere tugging of muscles and curve of the mouth nothing in the eyes cold and empty she goes right you're not human right and Okay, there's so many things I wanted to say about that, right? Uh-huh. I'm going to start with bouncing it back to you about the stuff you were just talking about, which is like, Heather has this moment where she realizes, oh, the like objectification I've just been projecting onto her, um, her attractiveness and like her sexuality and the way I see her as like a sexy human is wrong, right? Or maybe not wrong, but it just doesn't connect to anything. Exactly, right. And then that makes that takes her back and goes, oh, right, you're not human, right? And she gets cold about it. She pulls back from Prane. There's not this moment where she goes like, oh, right, like I'm projecting my sexual interest on someone who's really not capable of reflecting that back on me. She loses the ability to project her sexual interest on Prime and immediately stops relating to her as a person at all. Thomas? Yeah? <laughs> How much of that is a parallel to what happened between Heather and Evelyn early on? Go on. That, like, very early on, Heather was very attracted to Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And when she didn't know her that well. 
And it slowly became clear that like Evelyn is probably somewhere on the A spectrum, even if um Heather didn't voice it outwardly. We can we can make inferences just from like her experience, the way that she talks about like rain and jokes about like you fucking sex fiends or whatever. Like, you know, we can we can kind of gather these things that at least if she's not on the A spectrum, then she's way closer to it than Heather is for for sure. Um, at the very least she has struggles with and, sexuality, yeah. Yes. And it's not as extreme, but as I feel like as that connection got made, for one reason or another, Evelyn, or sorry, um, Heather pulled away from Evelyn and closer to Rain. Hmm. Maybe that was coincidence. Maybe it was unintentional. And maybe it was just circumstance. Yeah. But... Well, I was going to bring up again, like, remember the Disney thing I mentioned in, like, previous episode which is catalepsis does have a bit of a habit of telegraphing um how close a character will be in the future to heather based mm -hmm. on attractiveness right mm -hmm. um uh that does very much happen in this chapter immediately like it opens with yeah. an, uh, another waited for us in evelyn's house at least this one was cute right yeah. and then immediately later despite the obvious of artificiality my first thought was how darn cuddly she looked she filled out filled out Evelyn's clothes very substantially, right? Yeah. Immediately, you can tell Prime's going to be in the narrative for a while. She's going to uh, like have some sort of positive relationship with Heather because Heather finds her attractive, right? But there is an exception <sighs> to that. We haven't seen it yet, but there is an exception. Is there? I've actually been okay. Yeah, I've been planning on looking out for that one in the text. I'm very interested in seeing where that one goes. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. In terms of that. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so this one at the very least, it's, um, yeah. But I think to be fair, like, yes, it's a little mm -hmm. bit of Disneyfication. Um, mm -hmm. I'd almost more say that's a problem with animation in general. Like even within, um, anime, you can tell like who's going to be important based on like how prominent and like detailed they are like oh, there's the joke like the, well, i'm not even thinking called, about um, disney animation i'm thinking about old school uh like the um uh the uh, fairy tales disney pulls from you can always immediately oh okay yeah um but yeah it, it was just a comment i wanted uh wanted to make um yeah, I, no it, it's a it, good point but i will i will point out that that at the very least hungry very specifically calls out like this is more complicated than just that. And Heather realizes it that like, yeah, ver very quickly, Heather confronts those feelings and is like, Oh, this is, it's messy. here. This yeah. person does not operate within the bounds that these feelings attach to. And that doesn't necessarily yeah. make me inherently wrong for having them, but mm -hmm. it does mean that like expecting any kind of a response that's even remote, like this would be like someone asking you what sandwich you wanted for lunch and you give them an algebra equation true yeah. actually one more thing about this i did want to bring up which i thought was interesting um heather mentions has this line about like my musings turned uncharitable Prame was built so very voluptuously with wide hips and a rather heavy chest had evelyn had evelyn used the word mannequin to avoid other more accurate connotations I decided not to check the details on that Amazon box, the box uh, Prame's mannequin came in. Mm -hmm. On my first read, I thought this was, uh, was very funny, right? Like, oh shoot, Prame it might is. have been made from a sex doll. 
On my second read, though, it started to feel like further dehumanization of Prime. Because like, it almost started to read weirdly as like maybe internalized slut shaming. Yeah, well, like Heather does say, like my musings turned uncharitable, right? It's mm-hmm. very clear the framework she's thinking about this from, right? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like, well, okay, if she is made out of a sex doll, why is, should that make literally any difference in your thought process, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The only thing I could see that attaching to is that um, Evelyn calls her out basically for, like, insinuating that she would sleep with Prime. And, like, Heather, I, I don't remember the exact phrasing but <clears throat> Heather basically blushes because she rec- she recognizes that if this thing is not human and does not have agency then Evelyn she's accusing Evelyn of sleeping with a conscious but not sentient thing that she made just because yeah. she was lonely that's a horrific abuse of power yeah that is true yeah so it does yeah. at least slightly branch into like oh, okay, that would be an issue. With, like, not necessarily her inherently being made from a sex doll, but with the fact that Evelyn did it. (laughs) Oh, shoot. Sorry, uh, y'all might have gotten that on the podcast. Uh, Just got a call, but um, not one that's immediately relevant. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, actually, I did want to talk about one more thing about, like, Prim's, like, soulless smile, right? Yeah wanted to talk about two things first and then come back around to that soulless smile, if you don't mind. Yeah. First one, um, the very first thing Prame says is, and this is such good writing on Hungry's part, um, Evelyn's saying, like, I made a specific limited bargain with this demon, cheap and easily fulfilled. And then Prame says, feed me a cat. <laughs> and everyone freaks out, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a joke. It's a fucking joke. The very first thing she says to these people is a joke. Not just that, but loosely translated, it means feed me pussy. <laughs> oh, shush you. Um, you know you were thinking it. Yeah, I, I was actually not, actually. That had not even occurred to me even a little. That's just you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just move on. Um, but no, so the interesting thing is, this is a demon from outside our world, right? So either it has to have had some prior contact with humanity, some capacity for viewing the human world, or in just the time it's been with Evelyn, or she, I should say, she's been able to pick up some kind of humor, right? Hell, just the fact that she's been able to pick up a language so far either implies like Evelyn had to somehow imprint it on her or something, right? But either way, the capacity to do humor like that, and Evelyn like assigns it, oh, like she says it's winding us up, but no, no, Prim's joking here right? It's a joke. Even that... if that was true, that still implies that she can understand their emotions well enough to do that. Exactly, yeah. That's actually fairly highly advanced social interaction. Um, The fact that Prane can do that implies very complex cognition going on, right? You know what this moment really, really reminded me of when I reread it? What? Have you um have you played through Mass Effect? No, I have not. I've heard a lot about it. Okay, that's fine. Um, in the second game, but especially the third, there is a character, Edie, 
um, I think it's evolutionary digital intelligence. I don't remember exactly what it is, mm -hmm. but basically she's an AI that is attached to the ship that helps you. Mm -hmm. Um, she has a very similar level of humor. Like, so to, mm -hmm. for context, um, within the mass effect universe, I won't get too into detail, but basically, um, AIs have been experimented with before they went very, very badly, a whole planet destroyed, lots of people killed. And so basically mm -hmm. ever since people have created like quote unquote limited AIs that aren't actually conscious, but are kind of some super efficient form of machine learning. Yeah. And Edie is different because she's an actual AI, which is basically like unshackled. And the um, humor is a hit. The, exactly. The humor is very deadpan. Like mm -hmm. you'll ask her like, oh, so what are you up to, Edie? I'm making plans for world domination. <laughs> that was a joke. Like in exactly that tone. Uh -huh. um, and even more interestingly, in the third game, her characterization is notably different because she takes on a different, very feminine, very sexualized body. Hmm. And I don't know, just a part of me wonders if, um, if, if Hungry was pulling ever so slightly from like something within that. Interesting. Just food for thought. Yeah. Anyways, I had a second thing I wanted to mention about it, which was, um, Evelyn says, like, you try finding a demon that wants to eat strawberries, right? But no, no, like, let's think about that. That implies preferences and a desire for pleasure, right? Um, like, a desire to do something other than rote survival, right? Mm -hmm. So Frame is intelligent, has preferences, and is seeking a way to fulfill them, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. and then and then let's come back to the part where she had such an alien smile and heck actually just the fact that she stands so ramrod straight and still too imagine if you were suddenly dumped into the body of a cephalopod like a cuttlefish right let's say you're suddenly dumped into the body of a cuttlefish and you are trying to socially interact with other cuttlefish how hard do you think it would be for you to swim and float in a way that felt natural to the other cuttlefish? How hard do you think it would be no. to flash your skin in, in the patterns that they recognize? Really, you bring up a really good point. And not just that, like every time you move, you reinforce how different and wrong this body is compared to what you're used to. How much body dysmorphia do you think Frame is suffering from right now? Every time Shit. she moves, every time she breathes, well, she doesn't breathe, which might... No, she does. Oh, she does? Wait. It says that in this chapter. Though she did appear to breathe, heavy chest falling, rising and falling with yeah. slow rhythm. Holy shit. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, of course she doesn't move. Like, yeah. I, like this, like, I won't get too into it, but Prame's body notably changes to kind of be what we presume to be more comfortable for her or more like the form that she prefers over time. Mm -hmm. But like at this moment, yeah. is it, isn't it interesting that the more her body changes, the more like human and expressive and lifelike her actions become. I assumed that was because of experience and it probably is. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if a part of it is also that like, being in her body is less existentially horrifying to her, so she can use it more. Well, I would think it's something along the lines of, like, Prane, my assumption about the reason Prane smiled here is because she's 
trying to interact with these people she's around now in mm -hmm. the way she's supposed to. And it's not working because exactly like if we were suddenly dumped in the bodies of a cuttlefish and we were expected to flash our skin in like the color patterns that other cuttlefish would like recognize as like amicable greeting, I bet you we would fuck it up. <laughs> We'd fuck it yeah. up in a very disturbing way, right? Yeah. Um, like not just that, like most cuttlefish have more color receptors than we do. Yeah. Like you wouldn't even know what colors were. Yeah. Actually, fun fact about that, I would like to note, there's some, you may have heard something about how mantis shrimps see so many more colors than humans. They have like amazing color vision, right? Mm -hmm. There's some recent research indicating that's not true. Or really? true in a different way. Uh, cuttlefish do and have, in fact, have a ton of different color receptors in their eyes, um, going all the way up to the capacity to see. Like some of them can see very low X-rays. Um, I know some of them can see ultra ultraviolet and distinguish polarized light. Yeah, yeah, they have uh, the capacity to distinguish polarized light. Uh, they can typically see pretty high and low on the spectrum. But the mm -hmm. very interesting thing is, it looks like the reason they have so many color receptors is because they're not as good at seeing color as humans are. Um, I wonder why. Well, no, because here's the thing. It takes a fuck ton of brain power to see color with only the three cones we have. Oh, that's interesting. Because it's almost have... like, the, like an exact equal but opposite mm -hmm. solution to the same problem. Yeah, so the thing is, humans have um, red, green, and blue... Um, roughly uh um our cones in our eyes uh god i fucking took a degree in this i should know whether it's cones or rods um let me look it up real quick god damn it yeah cones god damn it i took a whole degree in this i took an entire class about this shit you would think i would remember <laughs> don't worry you're very pretty please keep going <laughs> but anyways so the fascinating thing is um humans have uh, these three fairly broad spectrum um, color receptors. Like our mm -hmm. quote unquote green cones don't actually just register green. They actually register a whole bunch of different light will trigger them. Yeah, um, they just like, and a lot of what your brain does is it just like takes the difference between like the average, like you can't distinguish yeah. one photon at a time. It's always millions. So it just averages them out. Actually, the human brain can, in fact, register a single green photon in perfect darkness. Um, really? Yeah. How do they even test that? By point can sing, by putting single green photons into people's eyes in total darkness and having them press a button if they saw it. <laughs> um, All right. Uh, it's it's difficult. We don't have. Uh, we're not perfect at it. We get it right. Like uh, we press the button for about forty percent of the flashes. Um, but uh, and it, you have to wait for your eyes to adjust to do that. Um, but yeah, uh, human eyes, a very impressive machine. Um, but anyways, the point here is that like you can see these really broad spectrums. Like the green will register, like um, it will react to photons most often in this certain band and less often in this other band, right? Mm -hmm. So if you get like a bunch of a grouping of photons on the cones in your eyes, um, it like a given photon might activate all three different cones but in different quantities. And then mm -hmm. your brain post-processes and figures out what the fuck that combination means. Yeah, like for instance, mm -hmm. we can't actually technically see yellow. We just have really, really consistent guesses about what yellow is and what it looks like. Well, we totally can see yellow. Yellow triggers all three uh, uh, cones. Just 
not well, strongly. It doesn't trigger like this. There's no specific <laughs> yeah. cone for yellow. Exactly. But yeah. the brain has enough processing to take really, really consistent guesses at what yellow is. Yeah, it's 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 um uh, it's an inverse problem. Uh, it's an inverse matrix math problem. Our our brain does very effectively. Um, but mantis shrimp, mantis shrimp, don't have the brain power for that. The section of the brain which like there's no part of their brain which does that for them. They are just directly reading colors off of so, uh, a bunch of different fairly narrow band cone equivalents. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I just thought that was neat. <laughs> uh, my, my only contribution to this digression is that I know mantis shrimp have um, six different pupils, and I think that's very cool. It is pretty cool, yeah. Also, I wish I could see polarized light. That would make so <laughs> make your job a lot easier it would if i could distinguish between circular and linear light just by looking at it it would make my job a lot fucking easier okay we've gotten way <laughs> off track <laughs> yeah um but yeah, anyways that was basically uh, the totality of my digression on prime i think it's probably relevant to the next chapter you're going to be talking about um yeah uh let's see there's a couple other things i wanted to talk about in this chapter before i handed it over to you Oh yeah. First, Heather's body. Um, I just wanted to bring this up because you're always harping on it. I noticed a couple things about it. Go for it. Um, yep. Heather has a moment where uh, she has to steady herself against the wall and rub her sternum, massage the ache down. Um, more possible evidence that she has some alien organ uh, in her sternum or that psychosomatically localizes there. Um, or, you know, she has a perpetually slow-burning appendix. That's our other option. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I do think it, uh, it's Hunger's really good at like writing in a way where it's hard to keep up with feelings of continual damage and exhaustion without it becoming trite. But it's very well written from Heather's perspective. Um, and I thought it might make a good chronic conditions analogy. Um, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Well, that's that's the other thing that's actually unfortunately apt is that Heather doesn't see it that way. Because she has no basis of comparison. She yeah. hasn't really lived with anyone for long enough before, like, eventually Rain and Evelyn, mm -hmm. um, to be able to tell them, like, hey, do you guys ever feel this thing where, like, you're, you know, like, every so often your heart just feels like it's trying to explode out of your chest? And they're like, no, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well, Heather is constantly tired and aching and in pain a little. And it's, it can be very difficult to write that into a character without it just kind of becoming background noise for the audience. But I think Hungry does a very good job of avoiding that. And also when it does spike, emphasizing like, oh shoot, yeah, my background level of pain and exhaustion has spiked. Oh, that's worse. A reminder to everyone mm -hmm. listening, the normal amount of pain to experience when not having a specific injury is zero. Yeah. Please see a doctor. Um, last thing I wanted to bring up about Heather is um, the way she insists immediately that Prame is a her. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, part of that has to do with the fact that Prame's body presents extremely femininely. But also, I just thought it was worth bringing up in the context of um, how you keep on insisting that Heather has an otherworldly gender sense. I, I, it's been a while since we recorded. When did I say that? Uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Heather keeps on gendering spirits. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, that is true. Yeah. Um, no, that that's an interesting extrapolation of that. That um, yeah, it's funny because you're right. Um, Prame presents so extremely femininely 
that the thought that she could be a different gender hadn't even crossed my mind. But yeah, well, that was something which popped up to me immediately. I started thinking like, you know, Heather does have some kind of otherworldly gender sense. And I assume otherworldly genders are not limited to our binary, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or for that matter, the more expanded human non-binary spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there does appear to be some pneumosomatic life on which she can project some like analysis of gender, right? And I was yeah. wondering, I was like, if Heather was a, sorry, if Prame was like a demon who could be said to be identified as like a man in some way, would Heather have registered that here? Would she have read Prame as he instead of she? I think at the very least, Heather would have sent something off. Like mm -hmm. if, if mm -hmm. what we're going with is true, that Heather has some yeah. sort of a gender sense, she might not have picked up immediately that it's like, oh, it's a he and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But like, she might've asked like, did you choose those clothes or did Evelyn? I can see it going down that way, yeah. As like, a, but like she might not, not even realize what she's implying there, mm -hmm. but that's probably how she would ask. Yeah. Um, speaking about Evelyn, Oh, I am remembering why I started this story, just really kind of starting to hate Evelyn by this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I, a little bit, yeah. She had a long, she has a long way to go as a character. Um, mm -hmm. because like, God, this part where Ev uh, Evelyn says like, "Oh, don't be ridiculous." She marched back over to the blue lady and pinched her cheek like she was a small child. If it was at all dangerous, we'd already be dead. You think I would make that sort of mistake? Your confidence in me is touching, Rain. Thank you. And I'm like, that is so not reassuring after the last arc. Evelyn yeah. has fucked up also, so much. Also note the diction that Hungry used here. Pinched mm -hmm. her cheek like a small child. Oh, yeah. Definitely. What role does that place Evelyn in? Mother. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Also kind of places her in what I would imagine would be the role of her own mother. Ooh, we're not touching that. Ooh, boy. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, part of me was just like, Evelyn has repeatedly fucked up magic stuff, like, in the last arc. Like, really badly, in near-lethal ways, right? Um, And then she summons something where she says, like, if I fucked up this ritual at all, I would be dead, right? And doesn't even call Rain beforehand to be like, Hey, or leave her a message or, or a note on the front door saying like, hey, if you come by and I haven't called you, I summon the demon and it might be loose inside the house and I might be dead. Don't come inside, right? Just no conception of the fact that she might fuck up. <laughs> um, Almost as if generational trauma has the tendency to repeat if it's not specifically addressed. Oh, shush you. Yeah. Also, there's a part where Evelyn just says like, um, uh, she says, saying something about magic. She's saying, you made it very clear I am to warn you. I wish to honor that request. And I was like, Evelyn, you did not do that with Prame. Yeah. <laughs> you just summoned well, a demon I mean, without I telling anyone. I think it's fair to say she did this out of spite. She wanted to be useful. She was aware that Heather and Rain were going closer together. And she's also aware that she can't really do anything on her own. Mm -hmm. Like they, Like, I think, wasn't it in this chapter where Heather was asking, like, were you going out on your own? And oh. Evelyn basically gives her a look and is like, look at me. Do you think that I'm that yeah. stupid? Oh, yeah. And she's sending Prame out to, like, do hit and run things on Sheriford, on the Sheriford cult, some uh, mm -hmm. twisted space shit, right? Um, 
Also, just like a note, like I really cannot emphasize how stupid of a decision this is, and it very much makes sense that like we learn uh, in the next chapter that Evelyn has not been getting sleep or taking care of herself, right? Because first of all, Evelyn says she has straight up no idea how the Sherford cult is doing their spatial magic. She has no idea how they've gotten it into so many different places in town so quickly, right? And also, the Sherford cult is apparently a specialist in zombies. <laughs> they also, she admits, either in this chapter or the next, mm -hmm. that they almost successfully assassinated her. Yeah, yeah. No, no, but no, but specifically, think about this for a moment. The Sherford cult is a zombie specialist. They've known that for a while. When they first moved into town, Rain had to kill a bunch of the Sherford cult zombies. And apparently, they've made more. Uh, like, Evelyn has learned that in her scouting. And also, they've got the fucking huge zombie who beat the shit out of Rain, right? Mm -hmm. Like, some kind of super specialist zombie, right? The Sherford cult is a zombie specialist crew. This is their specialty. And Evelyn has never summoned a zombie before, has no idea how the fuck they're doing what they're doing with their spatial magic, and she's sending her own zombie out to probe it. Like, on a this on is a, going to go well. On a tactical level, it's a fucking miracle that Prame hasn't already been suborned and sent back to murder Evelyn. <laughs> and again, how would Evelyn ever know? Yeah. <laughs> she does she literally doesn't know Prame well enough to see the difference. Yeah. Well, she also literally doesn't know what the fuck the cult's doing with her spatial magic. She has no idea what they could do when it comes to trapping Prame or retaliating, right? Mm -hmm. Um and so I just think it's we're seeing a lot in this chapter about characters kind of showing their ass with their early story characterizations, right? Mm -hmm. Heather's really- Which is good, to be yeah. clear. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Gro having a point to grow from is good, right? Yeah. Heather's kind of showing her ass in like difficulty personalizing other creatures, although she's getting there, right? Um, Rain in this chapter shows some difficulty properly handling the conflict with Evelyn, right? Like, she both fights when she shouldn't fight and doesn't know how to fight when she should fight with Evelyn, right? Yeah. Does that sound like an accurate characterization? Yes. Yeah. And then Evelyn's just showing her entire ass when it comes to dangerous magic. <laughs> I was about to say, Evelyn, fuck around and find out the rest of the gang. No, not like that. Yeah, yeah. Lord. No, but so one interesting... One thing I really did want to bring up with Evelyn, and I think, again, this is something Catalepsis does extremely well, right? When it shows doing, it shows us doing something poorly to show us how to do it well later, right? Like, yeah. we're already seeing this with Heather. It shows us bad self-care before it shows us good self-care, right? Yeah. Um, Honestly, even the early conversations with Rain were like that, where Heather got way in her head about everything. And then oh, yeah. later she got brave enough to be like, I need you to tell me what I mean to you. Yeah. Because she well, valued um, herself enough to see that, like, she needed to know one way or the other. Yeah. Well, also, I'm just thinking about how, like, incredibly deeply Heather was isolating herself about her presumed schizophrenia, right? Mm -hmm. And just thinking about the fact, like, if I had a friend in my college D&D group who had, like, serious visual hallucinations right i was just like hey i get freaked out sometimes because i see monsters even though i know they're not there none of us would have thought less of them for it 
like at all we'd have been happy to help right <laughs> um, yeah but also keep in mind like what culture you're talking about oh you're yeah, talking absolutely. in like a, a a liberal american college campus oh yeah absolutely but the thing is is heather was very much isolating herself based on the just default assumption that no one could or would want to help her or be close yes. to her and there is a definite progression as the story goes on to owning her weirdness to the point where even when she is genuinely weird like with all the shit she gets up to with brain math right yeah she can go nah fuck it i want to be around people who could, like i do want to be around people first of all second they got to be people who can handle me right yeah there's growth there right and there's something with evelyn here with growth specifically about guilt i wanted to talk about um do you mind I, yeah we have time to get yeah okay um there's this part where evelyn says i know what you want to say ring i'm getting more like my mother every day and ring goes hey no never i'd never say that you know that right first of all backstory look forward yeah. to look forward to reading about that uh that more right but also evelyn's her own worst critic except in the ways that are important because the thing is guilt is useful it is a it is an extremely useful emotion um it's a it's it's a motivator in many ways yeah as someone who genuinely struggles like to feel guilt for a lot of things and has had to kind of like bootstrap it out of related feelings uh Guilt's fucking useful, y'all. It's really useful. It's a good emotion to have. Um, but the thing is, is that the way guilt is being employed here is not productive. It's self-flagellation. Evie wants to, Evie is hurting herself with it. And hurting herself in a way that makes other people come in and care for her and validate her, right? Which I'm not sure if that's intentional or a nice side effect, but it's it's also just not really helpful, right? But there's a very different sort of guilt she could be having here, which is where you go, like, you feel guilty about having fucked up about all the magic mishaps, and then use that as a safeguard against future magic failures by making it so that that's something you think about next time you do the magic thing. You also, you, I pinged off of something you just said. Um, it's definitely not intentional, and the I wouldn't give, like, I don't diagnose fictional characters, okay. but even if I did, like, this wouldn't be the correct diagnosis, but it is, I mentioned it only because it is interesting how her behavior in some ways is close to the superficially borderline. I, I would more say that um, just as narcissistic personality disorder is like very ordinary human traits taken to such an extreme that they become qualitatively different yep. there's the same thing with borderline i'd say that's what evelyn's experiencing like she's not exactly she's not actually borderline she's not all the way on the this is a personality disorder side of the spectrum but yeah you're absolutely right this is in a lot of ways the mm -hmm. way that you would approach this is kind of similar on a superficial level to some ways you would start to approach a person with borderline before you realize what it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Evelyn, yeah, she really does have a lot of difficulty with healthily processing guilt and failure and negative issues. I mean, we talked about this before pretty explicitly that like there were, there were moments earlier 
where we pointed out that like the this is a moment where where they could have a genuine emotional conversation and correct a behavior of Evelyn's that is legitimately wrong. But because she goes so far overboard in this other direction, Heather has to assume this other role. Yeah, that happened in the previous uh, chapter. Yeah. Um, at the same time, though, here, I think Heather does very successfully diffuse some of the situation between Evelyn and Rain and get them on a slightly more productive path. Mm -hmm. um, I think the presence of Heather is a very stabilizing influence in this relationship and is um, uh, helping bring it to a better place. Yeah. Um, oh, there was one last thing I was going to say. I'm forgetting, and I really do want to give you as much time as you can have to talk about 3.4, so mind if I just rush through some uh, one last thing at 3.3? Yeah, sure. I don't have as much to talk about in 3.4, I'll let you know, because like a lot of it is just kind of setup stuff. But You make me feel it. bad if I talk too much, <laughs> or no, I feel bad it. if I talk too much. I should have put that on you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, here, here you're talking about Evelyn. Do you want to do you want to get into your own? Oh God! Please don't do this. No, no, I brought this up myself. <laughs> I did mention your next appointment with me is in October. I can move you up. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I wanted to talk about guns real quick, um, just because uh, I think it wasn't until I read Catalepsis that I really understood the degree to which um, my grounding in American gun culture robbed me of the ability to write and read guns as dangerous as they truly are in fiction. Mm -hmm. um, uh, like, uh, Rain pulls a gun when she sees Prane, right? Um, uh, and I, I found it a little funny when, um, uh, like, there was a part at the beginning where... Uh, Prame is described as being more dangerous than the gun, right? Like a lot more. But Heather's freaking out over the gun more. And there was a there was a moment where I realized my brain shifted and started seeing it from like a UK perspective as, oh, oh, that's a hell of a way to describe how fucking dangerous Prame is. There's nothing casual about labeling her as more dangerous than a gun. Um, because like there's this part where like Heather's saying, like, the gun looked so wrong and blunt in Rain's hands. Weird, stubby twist of black metal, right? And just, like, U.S. gun culture fucking wishes it could write guns with this much narrative impact and threat, but it can't, because treating guns as ordinary and expected components of conflict robs them of a narrative weight proportional to their threat. Yeah. And then the last thing is talking about Rain, because I love Rain. She's a great character. <laughs> um... Or she mentioned not biased at all don't worry not biased at all no <laughs> um she says like i never took the safety off it was a bluff and that's fascinating because it shows a very serious understanding rain has of the threat a gun carries and what it means to bring one into a conflict mm -hmm. but also a conscious decision to limit her potential to do violence even against such an extreme threat right because like mm -hmm. it wasn't like Rain was it, it wasn't like Rain was interacting with Prame as if she was a human and like trying to like out escalate the situation into de-escalating by bringing a gun into it, right? Right. There was no point where she's like, "Oh, I don't want to risk shooting Prame," right? Rain sees right. her as a demon, right? <laughs> um 
the gun safety involved there was not for Prime's sake, which means it was for the sake of everyone else in the room to guard against accidental discharge. Right. But I just, I love that. Rain is the scary as hell bad girl, which who embodies every single stereotype about that you can imagine in Heather's mind, right? And yet, she is not even a little bit the kind of person to flash a gun around. But I also think that's exactly what makes her pointing the gun at Prem so significant. Like, so I should preface this by saying almost no member of the U.S. law enforcement or armed forces actually follows this doctrine. This is just what's written on paper. Um, But officially speaking, even if it is unloaded with the safety on, you should never point a firearm at anyone or anything that you do not intend to shoot should the occasion arise. Oh, yeah. Never point it at an innocent, (laughs) never point it at any civilian unless you perceive them to be an active threat. That is what's on paper. Mm -hmm. And so while while Rain is quick to, like, de-escalate and be like, oh, the safety was on, blah, 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 I think you're exactly right. That, like, it was a bluff, but in a way, it's almost self-fulfilling. Like, it was a bluff because it wasn't necessary. Yeah. If it had come to, if Prem was actually a threat, Rain would have pulled the trigger yeah. without, without hesitation or question. So, like, mm-hmm. the fact that she's even pointing the gun at Prem yeah. well, says everything. Well, but what it also means is that Rain was making the conscious decision to slow down her response time in the interest of safeguarding everyone else in the room against an accidental discharge. She -hmm. was willing to take that extra moment to flick the safety before she could shoot Prame. I think there's also something to be said for like, she didn't know if that would trigger this potential threat to become more aggressive and she had people in close quarters with her. So it was potential that like she could set something off. Uh, Same difference. Rain is being, Rain is being cautious, even though flicking the safety off would give her an instant more response time in what from what we're hinted is hinted at to us about demons is an incredibly dangerous situation. Yes. Yeah. Um, anyways, yeah, I just really like how this stuff is written about Rain's use of guns and how heavy the impact is every time it comes up in the story. It's so good. It's good content. Um there's some more of that in the in the next chapter as well. Yeah. It's also um uh uh my first gr- uh, girlfriend she was um uh a hunter um someone who like hunted for food right um lord <laughs> she had things to say about like she's like god when there is a hunter culture there's this huge divide between people who are religious about gun safety mm-hmm. and the people who pay it lip service and really do not give as much of a fuck about it as they should right and she was just like yeah i only hunt with the first kind of people not ever the second which is an ironic use of words because usually the latter group are far more religious in the literal sense (laughs) Uh, yeah i i'm not sure how much that's anyways yeah we're finally at the point where like i want to hand stuff off to you with 3.4 um just with the mm-hmm. thought about we're about to talk about a the tentacled woman is she human or not <laughs> right yeah no that's that's essentially what most of what most of this chapter is about really is not not just lampshading but outright questioning the difference between like 
I, I literally had to stop picking out quotes because I was like, if I can't just keep saying the same thing every single time this comes up. Um, <laughs> but this chapter is basically just full of references where Heather is like, is this or isn't this the line where I draw? Um, though with that said, the, the opening to this chapter is line I'm shading something else. Um, this is when Heather is just approaching the tentacle woman. Nothing remained of my earlier entourage, dispersed to the winds and replaced with the usual spirit life. Scuttling ghoul-faced hounds and apish pack creatures lurked down the alleyways and mobbed in the street. Dark faces and staring eyes peered my way, but with mere fleeting curiosity, there and gone again. Back to normal. Normal. Right. And so I wanted to, first of all, it's funny, um, but also to point out the lampshading between like what Heather perceives as normal and what everyone else does where like someone else would see just like a flit out of the corner of your eye and they might turn back to it or they might think in their head like, oh, I know it was nothing, just ignore it. And whereas Heather knows not to look, but she knows not to look because it was real. Mm. <laughs> and it just totally recontextualizes the, these moments that we all have, but it's something very different. Yeah. Kind of like that one time I, um, I was shampooing my hair and um felt like you know like you always feel like an itch on your body somewhere when you like shampoo your hair and your eyes are closed yeah. um and that what time i finished shampooing my hair looked down and there's a centipede halfway up my thigh no 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 i shampoo with my eyes open now <laughs> it's worth the pain oh god the pain anyways Wait, do you mm -hmm. not, can you not shampoo without like it getting straws with your eyes open? It is difficult. It is a risk that I accept. Huh? I've just never found it difficult. Sociopaths. <laughs> uh, Anyways. Yeah, go on. We're we're getting to the tentacle woman. Um, the tentacle woman sat st still sat on the opposite pavement, in the shade of the gnarled oak tree. The tentacles from her back waved and bobbed in the air, like a human twiddling her fingers. I stared and realized with an odd shock of recognition that she had her chin in her hands. So first of all, excellent description as usual. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, like we get the literal moment of Heather making the connection, like you said mm -hmm. earlier, of the um, of what would you do if you were transported into like the body of an octopus? Like, yeah. this is what you might look like. Yeah. Like you're reaching for human analogs. Yeah, well, what I found interesting here is there's a humanization of both the eldritch and the humanoid. There's the humanoid mm -hmm. part. The tentacled woman has her chin in her hands. But then there's also the tentacles bobbing and waving in the air like yeah. a human twiddling their fingers. One of them is a very human thing. One of them is deeply inhuman. Both of them are personalized. Yeah, and more than that, this is also the first time we see Heather explicitly stretch the boundaries of human versus not human to mm. beyond her, her quote-unquote own people. Mm. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was also an interesting and important distinction. Yeah, it's a good point. And then immediately afterwards, we get we, she rose to her feet in a single sinuous slide, nothing like a human standing up. So, like, again, we're seeing these, like, non-human and human interactions happening right next to each other. Like, one pulling you one way, only to immediately be yanked back in the other direction. You, actually, I just had a thought based, like, something you said just, like, triggered a little bit of a thought. Mm 
-hmm. How much is this hungry writing about Heather learning to humanize the Eldritch by being slowly introduced to like a progression of the alien, which goes from like like human like Evelyn is to human like Prame is to human like the tentacled woman is to whatever comes thereafter, right? And how much is it her introducing the audience step by step? I was going to say the other alternative to that is it's not even Heather getting used to the alien. Mm-hmm. It's Heather realizing that the alien has a lot more in common with her than she'd like to admit. That's a good that, like, yeah. Think about how she sees people prior to this. They're strange things with gestures and communication that are almost entirely foreign to her. She's ostracized from them. She doesn't look like them. She can't participate in their social circles. She's othered everywhere she goes. Like, even on sight, she, people know that she is different. Shit, I had a thought. I don't know. If she, had, if she had tentacles, would she really be that different? God, you're right. At the beginning of the story, she's almost kind of like, like one of the pneumosomatic life that she's seeing around. She's almost a ghost in Sheriford. Yeah. People look right through her. But pulling back a bit, the thought I had before, which is you and I, I think we've both been reading literature for a very long time, which makes a habit of assigning personhood to deeply alien entities, right? And which considers that a virtue, right? So when I first started reading Catalepsis, I kind of went in with that mindset, right? I didn't have to be sold Mm -hmm. on that, right? Right. But I think it meant I missed how good Catalepsis is as a tutorial for that. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if somebody hadn't run into that kind of, that stance in fiction before, that uh, something which is very common in the right kind of sci-fi, and less common, but there in the right kind of fantasy, like, things which are deeply alien can be human like you, and then the step after that, which is, things which are deeply alien can be not fucking human at all, and they're still a person and you got to care about them as such, right? I think if I hadn't encountered that before, I think Catalepsis would be a very good tutorial in doing so. Yeah, and also actually in in a similar topic, um, I wanted to talk about this next bit, which really like um, after after the talk about all of this, about Heather trying to realize the line between like herself and the things she's scared of and the people she cares about, I think it strikes even harder. Um, I kept the fingers of my right hand on, on my left sleeve cuff, the edge of the fractal peeking out from underneath, like a gunslinger with a hand on her revolver. So when I first read this, I didn't take much note of it, partially because, again, like American gun imagery tends to just go over my head, but more because I saw the fractal as what Heather was treating it as, as insurance. There's this scary thing approaching her, and she doesn't entirely know what it will do. And she needs that extra division of safety. But then I was like, as the chapter went on, but even like beginning to read it for the second time, I was like, first of all, contrast this with how she described the weapon in Rain's hand just last chapter. And now how she's describing herself. And then consider what this looks like to that creature. Like, mm-hmm. Heather isn't just, doesn't just have her hand on this like a gunslinger. She is holding a loaded weapon in her hand that is pointed right at that creature. 
not with even the safety off. Not even pointed. It's something a fuckload more indiscriminate. Yeah, exactly. She pulls it's, that it's, thing it's, out. It'll she's kill almost every... more like holding a grenade. Yeah. yeah. She, or, or more like she's holding like something fucking radioactive. Yeah. Like she's holding exactly. a fucking demon core in her hand with the shielding like partway like ready to peel it off at a moment's notice. <laughs> For all of the five people listening who caught that reference. Oh, God damn, more than five people know. Am I doing that? XKCD? How many people do you think are listening? <laughs> Real quick, am I doing that XKCD thing where like the geologists go like, oh yeah, I'm sure like most people know at least like a few basic formulas for like, you know, your basic feldspars. I know <laughs> what it is. I also listen to five plus hour YouTube video essays on obscure topics for fun. Anyways, okay, before we go on, just so y'all know, the demon core is a very famous um, uh, thing that was used in uh, Los Alamos experiments on nuclear uh, reactions. It was um, uh, two pieces of barely subcritical uh, plutonium, I believe. Anyways, they were being they were being uh, there were experiments where they were being moved closer and closer to one another to um, uh, see how like see what would happen like right up at the criticality threshold, and because physicists were responsible for um, managing those experiments and not fucking engineers, uh, the two things were kept apart from one another by like fucking turning a screwdriver. And I thought it was like a piece of cardboard. It's just something. It was a screwdriver. It was a fucking screwdriver. And oh um, God. uh, twice, uh, people slipped the fucking screwdriver, and it uh killed people. Yep, including like <laughs> the night watchmen and janitors who were nearby. This is not just like oh, the physicists got fucked. I thought it was one person died each time, but like two people got uh badly irradiated on one of them. It was the yeah. point was there were indiscriminate casualties, and it didn't stop them from keeping going. The U.S. Yeah, military right. industrial, well. industrial complex is a wonderful, terrible thing. Yeah. Uh. Anyways. Uh. Yeah. Don't. Don't take my word for it on any specifics of what might have happened. But anyways, yeah, it's like you want to reference like unstable, murderous, like radioactivity for anybody in the nearby area. Demon Core is your reference. <laughs> anyways, um, so yeah, I, I wanted to note that that like <laughs> that Heather really is pointing a very indiscriminate, very dangerous weapon mm -hmm. directly at this thing and saying, please come closer. Is it any wonder why this creature just, like, basic, almost just basically books it? Well, she doesn't even say, please come closer. She says, shut up, I snapped. Stop there. Yeah. She's not being polite about this shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, the thing you just mentioned, there's a line where she says, like, she, Heather says, if this is a trap or something, I will mind zap you into some hell dimension. Take that as a warning. Yeah. And then the immediately tentacle. afterwards, she says, like, no, no, wait. If it's not a trap, that's fine. I, I think I want to communicate, please. And I wanted to point out that, like, I'm pretty sure this is the difference between how, how Heather feels she is forced to act and how she wants to. Oh, yeah, because she does say, like, um, when she was snapping like that, she says, then told myself to breathe and control my tone of voice. Command. You're totally right. She's imagining what she should be like, not what she actually should. Yeah, like when she makes that gunslinger reference immediately after she says, I felt silly. And mm. I was kind of like, one, I was almost thinking like, oh, maybe that's her trying to lessen the impact of what she's doing so she can feel comfortable doing it. And there's definitely some of that. Yeah. But also I have to wonder, maybe it's because her frame of reference for doing this is rain. 
And she feels silly trying to live up to it because her image of her is like on this pedestal right now. Yeah. Well, nothing is fucking as dangerous as somebody in command who is acting out what they think someone in command should be like. Or even worse, there's nothing as fucking dangerous as somebody who thinks they are supposed to, quote unquote, make hard choices. And so they take actions in accordance with like what they think somebody who makes hard choices would do. Very little is as dangerous as that. <laughs> so the, the age old adage, just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's right. Oh, I'm not sure I've heard that one before. I like that one. Well, that and um, I refuse to give Marvel credit for anything, <laughs> but basically saying, um, I have the courage to make this choice. And the only other person saying, I have the courage not to. I do like that. Um, Anyways, yeah. um, I didn't have many notes on this section before we get to the um, Rain and Evelyn bit. If you had anything else you wanted to draw to attention, um, a moment of uh, I guess it's not technically socialist rhetoric, but it's where my mind went. <laughs> Just for yeah, go for it. I need to hear this. Evelyn brings up Gen- uh, and uh, Evelyn brings up General Zukov at one point, who was apparently a general in the Soviet Union. I know about fuck all about him, but it put me in this mindset. Um, when you were talking about like just because something's difficult doesn't mean it's right, the first place my mind went to was all of the studies and some of the real world implementations which are coming out of what happens when you switch from like a forty hour work week to a thirty hour work week, and the answer is everything gets better. Yeah, just in some cases productivity goes up, uh, in very few cases does productivity go down, and just people have more time and report being happier, especially having more time for kids and stuff like that. And just, it's just purely better, right? <laughs> um, it was just my first thought, which was like, yeah, just because something's more difficult doesn't mean it's more effective. <laughs> yeah. um, so in, in that section, um, yeah. I did want to bring attention to a bit right before that. Um, it was talking about, um, we were mentioning how Evelyn and Rain um, kind of like talked out some of their differences. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to note that like there's some amount of nuance here. Um, Mm -hmm. Did you two make up, I asked, once we were back inside the warm wooden womb of Evelyn's house? Uh, Mostly. Mostly, yeah. Gonna go with yeah. And what does that mean? She spread her arms in an expansive shrug. It means we're all yelled out for the moment. And I wanted to say I like this distinction that... Mm -hmm. It, the the acknowledgement that like even when you were attempting good communication in genuine good faith, that sometimes arguments can't be solved in a single sitting. Mm-hmm. And that's not like a fault on either person. It doesn't mean that someone was wrong and refused to admit it. It didn't mean anything else. It means that like you guys talked through all that you could and you need time to let that percolate in your heads before you can come back to it. That doesn't mean the issue is over. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's solved. But it means you have done all that you can on it for the moment and you need time before you can do more. Yeah. That's a good point. Especially if like coming from a U.S. perspective where arguments are framed so much as like a, as an adversarial like competition thing where one person wins and the other loses. I mm. liked this version better. Yeah. Yeah. And I did want to bring this up again. Like, I think we're getting to the point in the story where Hungry has introduced us to these characters and gotten us, like, to like them, right? Um, like, I know Evelyn specifically, like, frustrates me, but that's because, like, 
there are specific elements about her personality which like i struggle with when dealing with people in the real world right there's also not just that but like you you it frustrates you because you care about her because you want to see her do better oh yeah well and i'm also thinking there's other people who could be reading the story who could be more wigged out about rain because they react much more strongly to violence right Mm -hmm. or some people could be more wigged out about heather because like i could see they react badly to sex yeah true um yeah and so the thing is is um regardless of individual like character preference at this point in the story we've been brought up to the point where we like all these characters we want to see them do well and what's going to happen with them but we're also just far enough into the story to actually start getting into the meat of and there's going to be some problems which have to be solved right which means like the coming arcs we're going to start seeing the low points of these characters right we're going to see them fucking up real bad we're going to see them having a bad time right and i think that means that there's going to be a lot of criticism to get thrown around in these like podcasts that doesn't mean we're disliking any of it <laughs> it's great it's fantastic yeah. it's excellent reading i love it <laughs> we're, we're we're yelling out of love yeah 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 it, it's kind of like um oh it's uh it's like if uh it's like when civil engineers build their little models uh to see like if putting up a dam might flood the like nearby structures right it's not a bad thing when you flood a structure and everything collapses that's great you love it it's progress to making a good dam but you gotta break it first break the little characters over your knee (laughs) reminds me of that calvin and Hobbes comic that was like um he was asking, like, oh, what, um, Dad, how can they tell how much um, the, how, mu- how, how many tons this bridge can hold? And Dad's like, oh, yeah, well, they just, they build the bridge, and then they drive, like, heavier and heavier trucks over until it collapses, and then they just note that down and then build the bridge again. I mean, that is kind of, like, way back in the day, doing that with scale models <laughs> was something people did, yeah. <laughs> we do it better nowadays, but... <laughs> Uh, um anyway moving on um i did want to point out that bit you you mentioned that um war general quote and i actually wanted to draw our attention to the moment right before that um where basically um heather is trying to um like argue evelyn into a nap (laughs) are we in imminent danger of being undermined and detonated from below no is this all going to collapse if you leave it alone for a few hours well no not at all but no (laughs) buts you need a proper meal and a long sleep. You can't fight a war exhausted. So for one thing, self-care is important. We like that. Um, but also it's more intersection between reality and the absurd. That like, yes, you might be a teenager who's gone through unfathomable horrors and is now almost single-handedly waging a war against a shadowy cult that you know not the origin of. You still need to sleep. Yeah. Um. Also, actually, just something I do like about this is there is, however, a recognition that, like, if things actually are serious, sometimes you do got to, like, skip sleep a little, right? Well, the thing is, I think this means Heather understands Evelyn, or she's starting to, because that's why she goes for this first. She knows that if she just tells Evelyn, you have to sleep, Evelyn will start building herself up into a position where it's necessary she stays awake. So first, Heather asks her, hey, the, like, there are conditions which would require you staying awake. I'm going to check with you. Are any of them happening right now? And then she goes in and says, sit the fuck down and sleep the fuck up. 
I also wanted to point out that um, this might just be because I'm on a Princess Bride kick lately, but like this just very much red is a bit of absurdist humor from like kind of similar to that where um, Humperdinck and the Six-Fingered Man are like just mm-hmm. walking through the forest and the the man is like, hey, so I'm going to like go torture this prisoner of yours. Want to watch? And Humperdinck is like, you know, I love to watch you work, <laughs> but I've got my my um, nation's 500th anniversary to plan, my um, my wife's um, assassination to plan, and then Gildren to, fl- to frame for. I'm swamped. <laughs> and his, his friend is like, get some rest. If you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. <laughs> and it's just like... It just reads is very, very similar to like, look, if we're if we're about to be like exploded on, then you might have a point. Otherwise, uh-huh. go to sleep. <laughs> look, I understand. You've got like a shadow war to wage against a secret uh, cult of zombie razors. You've got uh, like an extra dimensional uh, rabbit hole to unravel. You've got demons to summon, but you need to get your rest. You can't do anything. And then Heather goes off to make them a cup of hot cocoa. Uh-huh. As if to just drive the point home even further. Oh, yeah. I also do like the uh, the role Heather inserts herself in here, where, like, she basically, like, points out to both, like, Rain and Evelyn, like, hey, we all need sleep and food and the basic necessities. Like, Rain, go to the fucking corner store, get us some curry. <laughs> Evelyn, <Yeah>. sit. <laughs> right? It's... Yeah, and she even she's somewhat embarrassed about it, but like in a good way. Like mm-hmm. I blushed. Don't. I'm just. You two seem incapable right now. You can't all carry guns and summon monsters. Some of us have to remain normal. To which I replied, mm-hmm. "Sure, sweetie, you're the normal one." <laughs> no, but I think that's the interesting thing. There's they've got this very much this tripod dynamic going on where, when two of them are in conflict, the other one takes the moment to be like hey, actually, could we be fucking normal about this? Although, I'm not sure Rain's done that between Heather and Evelyn much so far, but... I, I feel think like that... she kind of stepped into that role when um, Evelyn was angry and throwing her prosthetic leg and Heather was having her, like, sexuality crisis. Yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right, yeah. Well, also, I think Rain just tends to be, like, the pillar of stability when they're all at a fucking crisis all at once. Yeah, 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 and like Evelyn is freaking out, and Heather's freaking out, and Rain can just be like, "No, we're good." Um, um I also wanted to point out that um, mm-hmm. what was I gonna say? Shoot, mm-hmm. isn't that Heather and Rain? Oh well, it must not be important. Mm-hmm. I I did want to just comment. Uh, I really liked the um the paragraph which mentions where um Evelyn's just like she's tired and her like um. Uh, um, her amputated limb is sore, and so she like needs to take off the prosthetic leg and rest, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this contrast is drawn between when three days ago she'd watched Evelyn put on her leg, and like said like that had been an invitation, a moment of recovery and regeneration, and then she says like this is just a sordid routine of pain, and it doesn't feel right to like peek in on Evelyn during it, right? Right. And then like. Uh, Evelyn like grumbles and massages her stump, and uh, Heather gives her an awkward hug. I just, it's um, what was I gonna say? Uh, there was there's something like um, I think which is important to keep in context in like representation spaces, right? Whether it's like queer rep or disabled rep or whatever, right? Which is you're never going, you're never going to get perfect rep for everybody in one story, 
right? Mm -hmm. That just doesn't happen, <laughs> right? There is, no, there is no perfect rep. There is specific rep. Exactly, yeah. But I think there's also something to be said for that scene by scene in an individual story. No one scene will encompass the totality of an experience. If you want to do good rep, you've got to get the whole thing, right? And I, I think that's <clears throat> kind of what's happening here. We saw a beautiful moment, like genuinely really beautiful with Evelyn's uh, leg earlier on a moment of like real intimacy and connection between her and um, uh, Heather, right? But this is also part of the process of having had an amputation and having a prosthetic leg. Your leg gets fucking sore and it hurts. And the process of putting all your weight on a prosthetic is not pleasant in the long term. And you end up sitting on the couch and grumbling for a while. That's also part of it. I also think that that, uh, this is a more broad point to leftist circles, but like, I think that what you just said is really important in discussing rep that like, yes, no one scene is going to be fully inclusive of rep. And that is correct. Mm -hmm. But I think the broader point is like, you would also not expect one scene to be inclusive of the characters that are in it. Could hmm. you sum up like to take the most like why widely culturally shared example, could you sum up Luke Skywalker in a single scene, all of his character? Hmm. No, because each scene is demonstrating a different part of who he is. Like, yeah, you could point out like the moment where he refuses to kill Palpatine and like, you know, like whatever, or um, where he like explodes the Death Star or whatever. But then that would be missing the bratty farm boy who like just suddenly had to deal with losing his parents. That's an equal part of who he is. I think that's actually an especially good example because Luke is extremely an archetypal character. Like, he leans heavily on archetypes for his yeah. characterization, right? He's um, literally chosen one hero farm boy, but space. Yeah, he's, he's as archetypal as you can possibly get, right? And all of his big scenes are meant to be huge culminatory moments of emotional development, right? Mm -hmm. Like, meant to encapsulate his whole journey up to that point, right? And yeah. it's film, too. Film is a super compressed medium, right? Mm -hmm. And yet you're totally right. There's no single scene which could sum up all of Luke Skywalker. Yeah. So you're it, like, To ask for perfect rep of any character uh -huh. would almost be like asking, like, hey, why doesn't Luke Skywalker represent all men? <laughs> like, of course he doesn't. Yeah. No, no. But also, you're absolutely... I, I love this example you've picked because... Fucking hell, if you can't do that in a single scene with Luke fucking Skywalker, how are you how can you expect an author to perfectly break down an example of representation for an oppressed group for which there is a lot of complicated social baggage and misconceptions? How can you expect to do that in a single scene? <laughs> yeah. And even then, like within the single scene, you again you can get specificity. Like, mm -hmm. you can show how, like, the arc of the, like, the, like, simple bratty farm boy that he started out as has culminated in this moment where he grows past that and changes. You can point out, like, where those individual elements are. You can break it down. But you still need all of that preceding context in order to make that work. Mm -hmm. I guess we're, we're way off topic now, but... Yeah, just thought Please, I'd we're, we're talking... We literally have questions in the story about, uh, like 
uh, on our first page of notes to remind ourselves, like, how is this a piece of queer literature and how is this a piece of social commentary? If you think how this serves as a piece of rep in an individual scene and how, like, that's difficult to do isn't relevant, I don't even know why I'm doing this podcast with you. (laughs) (laughs) Shush. Anyway, speaking of social commentary, um, I wanted to point out, um, this is just like a blink and you'll miss it moment, Mm -hmm. but... um, we, as hard as it is to believe, just because we've been talking about it for so long, um, the story, and Heather specifically, has not actually named what Rain is. They haven't used the word. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, she, she, and so she mentioned I'm, something about psychopathy earlier. Yeah, but that's still not what it is. Um, yeah. That's the closest she got. And I wanted to point out when um, they're talking about, oh, well, like, what if, um, what if something discovers us in the sheriff house and attacks us? And Rain just casually says... I'll gut and skin her, like the zombie, before I'd let her touch a hair on your head, Rain said. It wasn't a joke. And I wanted to point out, Heather can distinguish the difference now. She doesn't comment Mm. on it, but that is a moment where she's very quietly noticing, like, Rain just threatened this act of horrific, intimate, slow violence. Like, like, (sighs) gutting and skinning something? Like, I don't want to, like... I'm not someone who has experience with that, but even I could tell you, like, that's not just like, oh, they're dead. That's like, they're dead, and I'm going to keep doing this for the next five hours. Yeah, you got a point. You got a goddamn good point. And and Heather can recognize, oh, she would actually do this in the right circumstances. Shoot. That's a really good point. (laughs) Again, blink and you'll miss it, but Mm -hmm. just... I interesting um but more um more broadly when you were talking about um evelyn's past there's this interesting moment um yes shareford is mine people like this have to be kept under control it's just me my mother and my it's just me my mother and grandmother are gone it's not just you i said it's us too i yes yes heather it is um so first of all people like this we're just gonna point that out that little mm, Mm -hmm. that's doing some work there um but also interestingly is like you can see how this is connected to heather's or heather evelyn's past how Mm -hmm. much her past is still informing her of how she thinks in in terms of like her actions in the future we've had several moments of sort of culminating like you said, um, culminating like plot central moments where Rain and Heather both have been like, Evelyn, you're not alone. You have us. You can build this community, this like, they didn't say family, but like this family with us. And uh-huh. Evelyn's like, okay, we can do this together. And any other story would have left it at that. It would have just been yeah. like, okay, cool. Evelyn knows that she's not in this alone anymore. Mm. Awesome. But here's where we see how catalepsis does things differently where it shows that like, Hey, so you can have those really important conversations and know intellectually that, you know, you aren't like on your own. If you grow up like that for almost like the better part of two decades, you're not just going to suddenly adopt the mindset that comes with that knowledge. You're going to have to keep actively reminding yourself of that fact over and over again until it actually sticks. Huh. You know, you just made me think of something about, like, I think there's something which has been going on in catalepsis over 
the entire arcs we've read through so far, which is a very slowly shifting ideology change. I hadn't noticed until you mentioned that. Um, to discuss it as much as I can without spoilers, um, I think there's something to be said for what Evelyn is trying to do right now. She is trying to create a negative space. She is trying to remove the Shero Fort cult. She she tries to remove hostile mages from her area, right? But she is not yet at a point where she is replacing that with anything. She's just trying to maintain a vacuum. Herself and Rain and no one else. And it'll be very I want us to put a pin in that to try to track that as the story goes on. How does that how does how does Evelyn's goals in why she is driving these assholes out change? Also, I wanted to point out like that people like that line. <sighs> it's yeah, I was, I was gonna say like it's it's doing it's it's showing a lot there. But mm-hmm. also more like most most literally and most importantly, I think it shows how Evelyn sees the world and sees the Sheriff Ford cult. She sees every cult member as totally fanatical, totally driven, totally committed to whatever the cause is. Like there is no room for anyone who was conned into this, who may not be able to escape, who is led there under false pretenses, who may be hostages, any of them. Well, I would sim- I would also argue just the position Evelyn is in is she doesn't have the leeway to treat the situation with that level of nuance. Um, She's a kid. Like, if you're listening to this and you're reading Catalepsis as like a college student, I understand you don't feel like a kid. You're a small child. <laughs> like the two of us are children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I think if there's a point at which you are like in your young, uh, like late twenties where you realize, oh fuck, we're still kids and we're gonna be kids for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, Evelyn's a kid. She's a fucking kid, right? And she's doing this basically entirely by herself and with some help from Rain, right? She does not have the wherewithal or the support network to to do that, to do what you were talking about, to think about and care about the people who might have gotten conned in or pulled in against their will or who might be saved. She doesn't have the that capacity because she doesn't have a support network. She just has this tiny little point on the map. Or at least she thinks she doesn't. Yeah. Ah. Uh, at least she uh, is inviting uh, Rain and Heather to live with her now. <laughs> I was about to say, okay, so getting to that. Um, mm. So she invites them to live with her. And, of course, um, Heather is immediately like, oh, okay, cool. So, like, we won't, like, I'll have to pay rent, but, like, we'll only need one bed. And, oh, no. Um, <laughs> and this scene plays out, which just I wanted to read. Um she rolled her eyes. Told you so, didn't I? It's always that way with Rain. Told her what? Rain asked. I shot an embarrassed frown at her, but for once she seemed genuinely innocent of the implied meaning. Nothing, I murmured. I muttered. It doesn't matter. You are wearing Rain's jumper. I am aware of that. Rain lit up and started laughing. I couldn't keep the blush from my face, stammering out a terrible excuse, even as I smiled like an idiot. And I just said, I love these three. No notes. No notes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um. Well, expanding past these, yes. three, I, th- I think we're at the point where we talk about Lazi, right? Yes, yes, we are. That's the very next thing. So I wanted to open. Um, I only have a few sparse notes here because it's basically just the beginning yeah. and the end. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So for the beginning, I wanted to point out something that had somehow escaped me until now. Um, so I'm going to read like the, um, what's it called? The end of the of the content before this break and then the lines immediately after. So you have some context. Um, Heather, Rain murmured my name. I, yes, of course. I'd managed to almost forget, you know? Evelyn nodded, sober and serious. I understand. I was there too, once. I shook my head. No, no, you've never had a sister to rescue. I have to start on it, don't I? Self-implementing hyperdimensional mathematics, Evelyn and I finished together. Lozzie giggled and slid another blunt plastic knife into the board game. Your turn. Heather, it's your turn. You have to put a knife in. Do I? I don't really think I want to play this. And I wanted to point out, first of all, that's abrupt as hell. Mm -hmm. Um, But every dream sequence has started this way. Every single one. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to point out that this is how actual dreams start. You never remember falling asleep. And you never remember the start of a dream. You were just you there and in the process of... Do you ever remember how you got somewhere? In yes. Dream? Okay. This is another sociopathy I, thing. No, Ignore it's not. Stories. I typically lucid dream. <laughs> um, okay. Well, that's another... Shush. Also, well, hey, it's for... not a great thing. Um, one of uh, My main symptom, actually, for PTSD from uh, uh, my dad's abuse as a kid was um, uh, nightmares. Um, I'm lucid and I can feel pain in them. Oh, so like you're <laughs> lucid, but you don't have control. No, I you're have control. It just doesn't fucking help. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I once actually, uh, fully just wiped out a dream, made it nothing but white and then brought in like nothing but meadows and bunnies and like, uh, like light fluffy clouds overhead. And I was still as fucking terrified as if you were facing down a horde of zombies. So much yeah. like the, I guess the the neurochemistry doesn't really change. Yeah, there's just, just some, there's something about nightmares. Um, but um, yeah, typically my ability to lucidly interact with dreams is um, I can do stuff like reset it to a previous point or modify parameters of the dream. But most mm-hmm. of the time, unless I really exert control, I can't do stuff like just wipe it all out like that. I do get like mm-hmm. sucked into the dream to some extent, even though I'm aware it's a dream. Right. But um, yeah, like I said, I feel pain in dreams. Um, I don't like actually know what it's like to be like disemboweled and have my like entrails eaten by a zombie. So if that happens in a dream, I assume I'm not feeling the true quantity of pain involved. No, you're just projecting. But my brain's doing its best I, to project I it. Just. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> there is um, I, I gotta say uh. One of my happiest moments in my fucking life was realizing that weighted blankets help prevent me have nightmares. Best fucking symptom management of my entire life. <laughs> We've gotten way well, off topic. We're talking about much nicer dreams say, here. For the, for the rest of you who do not lucid dream every single night, which is not normal, <laughs> this is my fifth reminder this episode to please talk to your therapist. Um, <laughs> that basically, for for most people who don't lucid dream, including myself, you typically don't remember how a dream starts or how you've gotten to the point in the dream where it starts. It's just mm-hmm. sort of assumed that you're there and in the middle of doing something. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I wanted to point out that like, that is how all of these dream sequences start. They're always in media res. 
when we're seeing these dreams, we are literally experiencing what Heather is in the same way she did. Mm-hmm. And I just yeah. thought that was a really cool literary technique. Hungry writing good. Oh yeah. Very good. And yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, um okay, and the last bit. Shoot. Um so I'm just gonna read all of this. Um what learn strategy? Why? He's after you now. He doesn't always get what he wants, but he's going to try. He didn't know about you before. I didn't tell him. Please don't think it was me. Luzzie met my eyes, a little sad, a lot worried. He knows because you did that thing with the bullet, because you escaped. He's working it out. He's going to work it out. What? I sat up and stared at her. Luzzie, what are you talking about? Who's after me? My brother. You're... I swallowed and took a deep breath, reminding myself where I was. You're a dream, Luzzie. You're kind of cute, but you're a dream. Stop scaring me. You should kill him if you can, she whispered. Kill him. Oh, that fucking felt like a dream sequence right there. It, it was real good. <laughs> yeah, just gorgeous. Um, but also what I wanted to point out is a couple of things. One, we technically have not had... Um, I don't think we've had Heather identify who Lozzie actually is in all of this. Like, mm-hmm. she knows that her name is Lozzie. And we know that well, Lozzie is the know, same person. Yeah, we mm-hmm. know she's, the, uh, she was, um, she was wearing the, the same person mask. who talked to the messenger. Yeah. She, but I don't think that Heather that, knows Heather, that. Heather does. Lozzie was wearing the skull mask in one of the dreams. Um, oh, okay. But I, but from what Heather says here, I don't think that. So first of all, it sounds like she's got some degree of like parallel memories um, mm-hmm. when she's dreaming. The self who is Heather in the dreams remembers the prior dreams and yes. remembers herself when she's waking and is therefore aware that her waking self doesn't remember this stuff. Right? Yes. Um, but yeah, I there's think a line in here, I yeah. never remember these dreams anyways. Yeah. But I think Heather thinks that this Lazi is just a dream projection which like developed from some nightmare about um the creepy girl with like uh the skull Mm -hmm. like with the skull mask yeah and but she she hasn't really been thinking of her as like actually that girl Mm -hmm. no that's a good point um and so Mm -hmm. also suddenly for the first time we understand why lozzy has been probably reaching out this entire time Mm-hmm. Which is interesting that she's taken the taken this long to say it. Yeah. Um, which like I'm sure there are like a bunch of different reasons. Like, I mean, it's it's a hell of a thing to ask someone to kill your brother. Um, mm-hmm. so like it could be that. It could be that she wasn't sure that Heather would believe her, that she'd take action, mm-hmm. that she wasn't sympathetic enough, any number of things. But it is interesting that finally we have a specific reason for why Lazi would be wanting to talk to Heather in the first place. And we can also, from this, we have in all likelihood confirmation that this is real. That this isn't that, like, because until now, technically, we didn't really know if this was just like a strange ongoing dream slash nightmare that Heather kept having, or if it was some sort of a metaphor. No, this is something specific that Lozzie is doing. Um, So we also learned something about Lozzie here, if I might interject. Yeah. Um, No, that was going to be my next point. Oh, sure. You go ahead. Well, basically just that there is more to her character than just this sort of like ditzy fae like mm-hmm. creature who like laughs and giggles through the outside. That oh. she did this with a very specific purpose. Actually, there actually is something different I was going to raise in that case. Um, yeah. But it's related. It's the part where um, she mentions like, 
different. Oh, wow, Heather. Oh, wow, you've been fucking, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> and Heather's like, oh, yeah, I did lose my virginity to a girl, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Lizzie, like, bounces out of her chair and takes Heather by her hands and drags her to the yep. feet and they dance around and they knock the table over they're dancing and they have a fun time and it's super, like, dreamlike, happy times at a meadow, right? Mm-hmm. And then Lizzie says, that's awesome. You're so, so cool. I wish I could do that. And it's really easy to skim over that line, but there's... When you take that in the context of everything else, how Lazi fears her brother, how she thinks Heather should kill him, right? And then you come back to Lazi wishes she could lose her virginity to a girl. Or wishes she could, period. Yeah. There, there's this point where Lazi says, like, I wish I could do that. And it's really easy to skim over in the context of, oh, you're so cool. I wish I was brave enough to do that. Yeah. Maybe that's not exactly actually what that phrase means there. Maybe it's not. I wish I was brave enough to do, do it's that. It's also really interesting because Lozzie plays to a premise or to, to an mm-hmm. archetype, which is pretty well known in Hollywood. It's like the, um, if any of you have watched Ruby, the titular character is very guilty of this, that mm-hmm. you have this character, usually female, who is seen as unbelievably wise, but also childishly naive at the same time. Oh, yeah. Uh, that uh, the wisdom um, comes from uh, a childish uh, na- uh, naivete the, um, from the mouth of babes. Exactly, exactly. And so what I wanted to point out is because of that, it is very easy for a lot of people, myself included for a long time, to see Lozzie as a fundamentally non-sexual being, to see her as this sort of like wise mm-hmm. but happy child, you know, who like sees things that others can't but also doesn't see things that are very obvious because to a certain extent, like those last few descriptors are true. She is, she can very easily see things which most other people can't. And she's also very much ignorant of a lot of things that other people would consider like very obvious. But at the same time, like we see here right from the beginning that like having sex is not one of those things. She is aware of who she is. She is aware of what she likes and what she wants. God, you know, and I think that that's just really important. Yeah, you're right. And it also brings something to mind. Like when we were first going over um, Evelyn's introduction, both of us were talking about how it's like, fuck, we totally lost track of what she actually looks like somewhere along the way when we were first reading yeah. this, right? Like Evelyn is cuddly. <laughs> she's like, mm-hmm. she's, chubby and curvy and wears like these really cute fluffy jumpers and skirts right but it's really easy to start thinking of her as looking like professor mcgonagall just like how i ended up starting to think of evelyn as mcgonagall because i was viewing her through the lens of her stereotype i think i started doing the same thing with Lozzie that you're talking about here um the trope she is playing into somewhat is very much a trope that is sexless right so it was easy for me to forget that right from the beginning, she's like, oh yeah, you fucked? Good for you. I wish I could fuck too. Like, straight up, right from the beginning. And she's... Mm-hmm. And it led me to be surprised a little bit when we see bits of her character later where, you know, Lossy fucks, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, In both senses. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's this trope she is playing into, which is absolutely not real. Yeah. I will point out my, like, what's it called? Um, 
I bring this up every time I can. Like my true pairing for Lazzy is still with like the concept of the outside, but mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. <laughs> oh. Listen, oh. every every everyone else is playing like what's it called? Like it, it is is a is a triad between her outside and this other person. Lord. Uh, anyways, I think we're about wrapping up right around now. Yeah, that's that's all that I had. Yeah. Um. I guess the last thing I wanted to mention was um, one last example of good writing. Uh-huh. Um, where Lozzie's saying, like, she's, I wish I could do that, Lozzie said. She produced the white chess piece from somewhere, turned it over in one hand and stared at it. But you're going to have to learn strategy, you know? Can't all be cuddles and shagging. It's just, it's such a good dream sequence moment. Because, like, that is, if I was watching a film and I was, there was a dream sequence and somebody suddenly shifted from, like, happy-go-lucky to unnervingly serious in a kind of ethereal floaty way this is like you know that in a film exactly what that looks like Mm -hmm. that's exactly Mm -hmm. what it's written here i love it it's good writing it's just good writing right then you want to take us out yeah um as always uh the intro and outro music are uh taken from celestial experiments by tyler river and the art is by noctilla at noctilla.art it's been wonderful having y'all have a good night Mm -hmm.